Yeah, man. <laughs> let's kill that bass head. Alright, let's do this. I'm on the air, we on the air, we got this pockets flow. It's me and Tony on the mics, we gotta let you know. Of current events, little gaming, sprinkling some entertainment. We stay humble, but our mom still thinks we're famous. Turn up the bass and baby, maybe let that magic flow. Our spoken word is all the things you really wanna know. Having a good time on the show, T Bows and Maddie G. Tune in and hit subscribe and join us on the FAP. Welcome everybody to the Freaking Awesome Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Bowes, and sitting next to me, of course, is not Matty G, as he could not make it today, but we have a very, very special extra, uh, you know, uh, last, uh, I want to say last minute, but this was actually a surprise for everybody. Uh, we have a co-host and bass player for Biff Naked, Ferdy Bell, and Ferdy, thanks for joining us today. Hello, glad to be here. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, as you can see by the character down below, uh, we, of course, have uh, our, our official guest today on the show is rock legend and frontman for the sensational power chord band Gatto, Greg Godovich. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Max. <laughs> <laughs> oh, something, something funny. <laughs> this, uh, Hello, this... It's nice to be here. Hello, Ferdy. Hello, Greg. Right. I have to, to be nice to see you as well. Nice to see you as well. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, I have so many questions already just with the glasses. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, uh, you know what, maybe we're, uh, you know, no, no, no. we're, we're going to jump into some news first. I know this question is so, so great, but <laughs> you got to bring into a, the, the camera a little closer Let's here. See. And oh, excellent. Alien, UFO alien, abduction. It's an alien cow abduction in a box. <laughs> I got this. This is all the presents that I got for Christmas were about alien abductions. <laughs> There's a theme I'll show there. You before we get in, I'll just Sounds show you like how it is. sinister foreshadowing there. Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the book yet. But I get, uh, there's a little stand that comes with it. But I, when I try to do this on a radio show or something, it, it always falls. But here's what happens. I click this. Hey, I love it. Yeah, and then there's a little cow here, and this <laughs> comes down and grabs it, and then we hear this. <laughs> and then it, of course, flies off and, and you know, takes the cow apart. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what extraterrestrials do. Yeah, right? Yes, you know? cow mutilations and other th things. It's anyway, definitely I'm better a, than we'll a probing. We'll get into it in my book, but I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer of uh, alien life, as we'll get to. But for the time being, let's get rid of this stupid. This actually lives on my Buddha out on my on my deck. These things. Are, <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I have an Elvis bust out there that's painted silver, uh, uh, bright gold as well. Amazing. <laughs> my neighbors think we're weird. <laughs> Well, this world uh, needs a little bit more weird, especially our show. So we uh, we do love it. Uh, and speaking of weird, let's jump into uh, some uh, interesting I news article today. Yeah. Um, so today's article I have, or the first one I have, is student legally changes name uh, after a fish in exchange for 176 pounds of uh, pounds, uh, English pounds of free sushi. So <laughs> this fish-loving university student officially changed their name after a chain of uh, sushi restaurants offered an all-you-can-eat sushi meal for the person who changed their name, along with five friends, 
Uh, officials in Taiwan were begging people to stop changing their name to Salmon after more than 130 fish lovers changed their name to get a, fa- a, a, a bag of free sushi. The uh, the incident, uh, of course, which has been dubbed the Salmon Crisis in local media, has seen lots of young people formally requesting to change their name at the government offices. Uh, the unusual situation that promoted the Japanese chain Sushiro uh, had run a two-day promotion ending on uh, the uh, on the 18th, which offered free all-you-can-eat meals to any customer and five of their friends that would change their name. Uh, the customers just de- needed to show the ID with the character, uh, the Chinese character for salmon. Uh, one college student uh, basically told local television that they had changed their name and managed to save 176 pounds. Um, however, the, the name they used on their license uh, uh, roughly translated to explosive, good-looking salmon. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they told the news station, I just changed my name this morning and uh, to all the characters, Bao Cheng Yu Yu, uh, and we already have saved over 7,000 Taiwanese dollars, which works out to be $310 Canadian. That's about what I spend on sushi every two weeks. <laughs> yes. yes, no, it's true. We we have we have a Japanese. Uh, he, he, the place is called Nakamori. It's in Scarborough where we live. Okay, and uh, it was it was right by the famous old Knob Hill Hotel where everybody played back in the day. Everybody played there, mm-hmm. and uh, he took it over about five years ago. And he studied with the the uh, Iron Chefs in in Tokyo. Okay. on how to make fine Japanese cuisine. And we, we discovered this guy. And uh, I've spent way more than 300 bucks in there in the last five years, I'll tell you. <laughs> but the guy is incredible. Uh, I'm going to change my name after the show uh, in honor of your 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 gag there to uh, Uni, no, Ebi Unagi. That's going to be my new name. So if you could change Greg Godovitz down there to Ebi Unagi, that would be really nice. <laughs> right I, I wish I could Mom's do that on the sushi. fly. <laughs> that would work out really cool. Um, so... When uh, when you were saying about sushi, actually, it's really funny. We had a, a a sushi restaurant that we really love. My wife and I love going to uh, around us. And uh, unfortunately, about uh, two months ago, uh, the place caught fire and burnt down. So uh, we're missing out on all our sushi lately. So well, and whereabouts are you located? Uh, we're uh, ju- I'm I'm just re- located just outside of uh, Kingston, Ontario, which is uh, Kingston. Yeah, in the Kingston area. Right, no, so, the well, limestone I mean, city. We played, we played down there so many times back in the day, and. Uh, you know, and then Shea Piggy, you got you got yes. that down there. Yep, yeah, that was that's still a great little restaurant. Although Zal's no longer there. But. No, he's not. No, I know yeah. they. Uh, he that's just, what happens uh, when you die. You don't get to hang around your own restaurant, <laughs> right? It's a shame, really. Yeah, exactly. But it was quite a. It's still quite a hot spot. Uh, a lot of people love going to it in the in the summer, and uh, they always have very unique creations on on the plates. So. Yeah, I'd like to get down there. I always get afraid though because you. I figure my past will catch up with me, and I'll end up in one of the jails down there. <laughs> You know, so maybe somebody's read, read one of my books and decided that maybe this guy should spend some time in prison. You know? <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, one of the major ones have finally shut down and it's just a tourism thing. So uh, if you if you want to go to jail, uh, you could go, just go check, take the tour. No, no. With my luck, I'd go in there on a tour and they'd lock me away. You know, <laughs> just by the way, down on cell block five, we've got Godovitz down there. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was very interesting about these tours because uh, I don't I don't think they would fully clean these places for people to come through, and I would can guarantee you would not want to touch anything. No, no, yeah, that'd be gross. yeah. Licking 
Being the poles in the in the the bars in the cells would be definitely off my list. <laughs> yeah, you know, I bet you twenty bucks you can't lick that bar cell, right? That cell bar. Yeah. You know, it's you a, we used. I used to live in Toronto for actually quite some time, and uh, there was always a running bet whenever we'd go out drinking to anybody who would lick the handrail on the subway, <laughs> and it was just. It doesn't matter how much booze and or money was involved; it was just not going to happen. I was the guy, actually, as a, I can't remember if I was 25 or 30 at the time, who put his tongue on the pole in the wintertime. <laughs> you know? Yep. Oh, there, well, oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just me then? Is that what you're saying? No, no. So, <laughs> I stayed there for about six months before they realized what has gone wrong, you know? So that guy's still like that old man still doing this. <laughs> Love that movie, that Christmas story movie. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, oh, Sc- no. Scotty Schwartz was the kid who uh, stuck his head, his tongue on that. So uh, we were who actually was it? Uh, Scott Schwartz, Peter Billingsley. Um, Pe- uh, well, Peter Billingsley, Peter Billingsley, was Ralphie. Yeah, Peter, Peter Ralphie. Ralphie. He was Ralphie, yeah. but the the kid who stuck his tongue to the pole was Scott Schwartz, and uh, he yeah, was okay. actually he was supposed to join us for a Christmas episode, and then he got called away for a last minute film. So uh, there's a rush. There's a restaurant down on, on Girard uh, in Toronto called Batafol. And we went in there for dinner one night and I see one of those leg lamps in the restaurant. (laughs) And I look at it and I went, this is an old one. And then they had like a ceramic uh, model of the Chinese, the chop suey house where they have the dinner at the end of the movie after the bumpus hounds eat his turkey. Yeah. 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 And they're singing fa ra 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 ra. This was the place where they filmed that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So the, the the lamp was actually one of the real props. And the great sidebar to this story is that there's a winery in the Niagara region called Malivore. It's a really good winery, Ontario wines. Okay. And a friend of mine who was a principal at my high school, but not when I was there, uh, he worked for Martin Malivore. It was Martin Malivore that invented the leg lamp. This guy that ended up being a wine, you know, like a really successful wine guy. And he also invented the gag where the guy gets his tongue stuck on, on the pole. Really? And not, not to spoil it, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, <laughs> they cut a hole in the pole, which was not cold, and they had a suction cup underneath it. So when the kid stuck his tongue, the tip of his tongue in the hole, yeah. they turned on the suction and it made it look like he was stuck to it. And Martin <laughs> Malavoir came up with all of these gags. That's crazy. So I, I have a full-size leg lamp in my room downstairs. And uh, my friend has promised me that this summer at some point, he's going to get Martin Malavoir to sign the, the leg lamp. You know? That would be really cool. Yeah. Just love it. Love that kind of stuff. And a brilliant Canadian, you know? Yeah, yeah. I noticed uh, recently that uh, they around Christmas time you can find that leg lamp for sale nowadays. So it's uh, it's very that's, interesting. That's where how, I bought it three years ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting how it's t- it's taken so long for like, to become a, a fad for people to buy it though, right? Yeah, I've got all sorts of Christmas ornaments like that. But what was great was my granddaughters were over Christmas Eve a few years ago, and uh, I had it when they were eat, having dinner and stuff. I put the big fragile box on the front porch and said to the girls, someone's at the front door. And they went out there and they opened the door and they start. I could hear them squealing and they brought it in. They go, look, judge, this is fragile. It's the lamp, you know? So we, we put it together, stuck it in the front window. And there's a really good friend of mine who's probably the best. Well, actually, I'm not sure he's the department store Santa. I think he's the real one, but I met him a number of years ago 
And he flies back to, before he goes on his rounds, he flies back to his one of his bases in Newfoundland mm. on late on Christmas Eve. But he always stops into my house. So after the lamp went out, I hear this knock at the side door, and I said to my granddaughters, could you go and get the door, please? And they came downstairs in absolute, I mean, I, I can't even describe whether it was terror, abject <laughs> terror, or just so freaked out they couldn't believe They said, Judge, Santa Claus is upstairs. <laughs> and I said, well, don't be rude. I mean, get the cookies, get some milk, and bring them in. You know? Invite them in. <laughs> and then they just sat there, like, staring at him. And one of them finally says, Santa, can we ask you a question? He says, oh, yes. He goes, how is it that you can sit here when you're supposed to be taking toys around the world? And he says, because of this. And he pulls out this gold key. And he says, I stop time. That's how I get it all done in one night. Would you like to hold it? Now, of course, my granddaughters were 25 and 26 at the time, but they bought it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were good sports. That's amazing. <laughs> it's actually a true story, but they were young. They were, you know, they were seven or eight or something. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was just incredible that they really believed that. I said, no, so listen, you guys mess around when you come over here. I got his phone number. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rat you out to Santa Claus. That's right. They were always really well behaved when they came to the house. Yeah. My uh, my youngest child, uh, of course, she's six. And uh, they're kind of going through that phase where they're trying to tell kids, you know, like, you got to be good or Santa Claus is going to leave you coal. Um, and and she was petrified. It was like probably the worst time leaving up, leading up to Christmas because she just thought everything she ever did wrong uh, was going to come back to bite her. And uh, she was really, really emotional. So it wasn't uh, until Christmas morning, of course, then she was fully relieved that, uh, you know, when she saw her gifts that, <laughs> that she wasn't I, I, on I the always, list. I always wanted a lump of coal. Because I also know Superman. I know he would come over and crush it into a diamond for me. <laughs> well, nowadays, coal is probably uh, even is, is, is pricier, right? I mean, it's actually got some street value to it. <laughs> well, that's all my grandkids are getting this Christmas then. It's just lumps of coal. I'll tell them you said so. <laughs> yep. It's got to be pure stuff. It can't be that like charcoal that comes out of a bag, though. <laughs> We've got lots of that. <laughs> the best way for barbecuing so yes let's talk about uh we're gonna jump right in yeah well let's talk about your book so uh, uh, which one we've got the first one or we've got the new one so let's let's briefly touch base about your first book um All right and uh because there is a lot of controversy around this book <laughs> well uh greg I didn't... controversy <laughs> <laughs> let's put it this way i was so loose when i wrote it in other words, drinking lots of wine, uh, and of course, alcohol being a great truce serum. I didn't spare anybody in this one, you know. Like, oh, good. <laughs> yes. Like, and, and it's funny, when I did the Mike Bullard show when it first came out, he says, has anybody sued you yet? And I said, I wish they would. I would sell more copies, you know. <laughs> Somebody sued me. You know? But, you know, we uh, we we, we, uh, we mentioned the names in this book. And uh, I the funny thing is, I would write something, a horrible story about uh, somebody in our organization doing something hideous, almost illegal or indecent. And I'd write it down. I'd start laughing. And then I'd phone them up and say, hey, I'm writing a book. And I just wrote this story about that time when you and the, and the, and he, and the guy says, you've written that? I said, yeah. He goes, if you put that out, I will sue you. <laughs> I said, okay, not a problem. I'll take it out. Between a man and a woman... Every single person I did this to called me up 10 minutes later and said, you know, 
That's a great story. Keep it in the book. They, they just wanted, yeah, it didn't matter how disgusting it was. They wanted it in the book. Yeah. So I come off great in the book, but everybody else, not so much. <laughs> the book that sells everyone up the river. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, even though I initiated most of the madness that went on in the book, you know, uh, I came up scot-free. Everybody else, guilty as charged. <laughs> but the, the first book, it, Travels with My Amp starts in 1964 when I first discovered music for real when the Beatles hit mm -hmm. and it goes to 1984. So it's, you know, really it's just the first 20 years of my career. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it. I didn't delve much into my bizarre childhood, uh, which was just as messed up as my adult life, because you got to keep in mind when I was 13 years old and I should have been playing guns out in the street, I was performing at after hour clubs on young street from one o'clock till three in the morning. Wow. So did that, how did that do with school? Let me think. I failed. <laughs> and then my dad went nuts and said, that's enough of this. You, you went into high school with honors and then you fail. I mean, how is that possible? I said, I don't care about this anymore. I want to be a beetle, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> who doesn't? everybody did back then, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll even show you a photograph here in the book of uh, my hairdo at the point, at this point here. So this is this is me in 1964. I, gotta, I never get this right. Yeah, like flight controls. I mean, that's just about as perfect a beetle haircut as you can get. Holy and Robin like, Sander. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. I think he was my <laughs> my go-to guy. And of course, now you see what happens when you wear your hair like that when you're 13 and <laughs> get it dyed, you know, pink and green and stuff. It, it all. You know, as my brother-in-law says, you have nice wavy hair. It's waving goodbye. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's what I said when he first said it to me too. But so then, so this book went through the first 20 years, but it encompasses all the early uh, bands I was in when we were playing British Invasion music, mm -hmm. uh, which included Brian and Ed Pilling that eventually came back from England. And then we formed Flood. I was okay. playing with Eddie Schwartz. The guy that wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot, we had a psychedelic band. Uh, cool. And then I started playing with the blues when I was 15 with these guys that said to me, um, I answered an ad in the Toronto Telegram, which was around then, it wanted singing bass player. I happened to be one. Uh, but I was only 15, so when I called the guy, I told him I was 16 because I thought that made me sound much more mature. And they gave me the job anyway. Uh, but they explained to me that the Rolling Stones didn't write those songs that you know. These songs were written by guys named Howlin' Wolf and Bo Diddley and uh, Junior Wells and Muddy Waters. And they gave me a crash course on, you know, Chicago blues when I was a kid. Wow. And then, you know, got into Sherman and Peabody with Buzz Sherman that ended up in Moxie. So, man, have I been blessed because every band I've ever been in has always been good. And I've always been surrounded by legendary guys who became legendary musicians, songwriters. Yeah, you definitely have uh, had uh, not only just a, a bit of a crazy ride uh, in life, uh, but the amount of people that you've, you've seen. I think I remember reading somewhere that uh, you've actually uh, you've also met Richard Branson, the the yeah the I have man a, behind I Virgin. Think, yeah, I have a picture. I think in this book of it might be in this one. I'm not sure. Uh, Richard leaving uh, the uh, CFRB studios, holding this book under his arm. 
Oh, wow. And I have a, I have a story about him uh, yeah. in this book uh, called The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo. And it's, it's about when uh, I'd seen a two-page advertisement for his new studio in Oxfordshire called The Manor. Okay. And I showed it to the guys in Flood. And a month later, we are the first out-of-town band to go and move into the manor, which was the building was built by Oliver Cromwell. So, you know, nice little bit of history. And then the stables and everything had been converted into the studio. Okay. Uh, they also had a very, very well-stocked wine cellar. Uh, they had a big L-shaped table, fireplace. It was everything you would expect, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Oldfield was there recall, recording tubular bells. Uh, nice. we, did, we didn't really get along too well. I, I burned a piece of the score in the fireplace in front of him one night just to, you know, get a laugh. <laughs> Only one of us was laughing and running. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> How to win and, friends and influence people by Greg Gold. I, I, I'm known for it. I majored in it. Uh, and then one night, John Jorn Anderson, the drummer, a great, great drummer in Flood, him and I found the key the skeleton key for the uh, wine cellar. Uh oh. And oh yeah, uh oh, it's right. Uh, I had my terry cloth. I look like uh, Harpo Marx when I was walking. Richard Branson gave me a top hat, which I put a daffodil in. Oh, nice. And I had my my uh, uh, comfy, uh, you know, uh, pajamas on. I wore all the time, and my terry cloth robe. So I look like Harpo Marx running around. <laughs> yeah. But we found a bunch of eggs that were outside, and we loaded up our pockets. We went down, got completely snap drunk, opening as much wine as we could. And then we went upstairs. Now, keep in mind, you know, this is a place that demands, should demand respect. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell, priceless tapestries on the wall, that sort of thing. Yeah. And we see Ed Pilling, the lead singer of Flood, sitting in a chair because the night before, things being, you know, these Bacchanalian dinners we had every night before we started recording, Ed was dancing on the table and leaped off and broke his foot. Oh, oh no. So, so he's in a cast sitting there, and I come in, I go, comfy, Ed? And he goes, yeah. I said, Fire nice and warm, is it? Yeah. Sure you wouldn't like a little blanket? No. Well, how about one of these? And we started pelting him with eggs. <laughs> and then and then all hell, all hell broke loose. We were throwing eggs against the art, oh, against the no. tapestries. We were bursting into people's rooms who were having fun with each other, throwing buckets of freezing cold water on them. <laughs> We we basically destroyed the place. And the next morning, Richard shows up and he gets out of his Rolls Royce and I'm walking outside and I went, oh God. And I start backing up and he goes, you, you, I'd like a word with you if you don't mind. And I'm, I'm looking down like this going, what do I do? And I'm looking at his shoes and thinking, boy, this guy's got really nice shoes. And, and he says, he says, I understand you lot had a bit of fun last night. And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, well, the next time you decide to do that in my place, at least have the decency to invite me to it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's all he said. <laughs> Year, years later, I'm recording the first Gato album at a studio in Montreal. And I used to walk across the road in my fuzzy pajamas and my terry cloth, because that's how I record. And awesome. I hear this guy at this place called Gibby's going, I know you. I know you. I know who you are. I know you. And it's Richard sitting with some record company guys in Montreal. And I said, oh, hi, Richard. I said, "Uh, yeah, I'm Greg from Flood. He goes, that's right. You owe me 30,000 pounds. (laughs) Oh. And 
I said, I said, I was just the bass player, man. I was just a salary guy. I don't owe you nothing. And I got my carafe of wine and some escargot on my back. And I'm still kicking myself that I didn't bring him into the studio to show him what I was doing. You know, <laughs> it was just such a missed opportunity. But you know, he sort of threw me there with that. You owe me thirty thousand pounds thing. You should have said, "Well, I think come, thirty thousand pounds back then was a hundred thousand bucks Canadian." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should have you should have invited him into the studio and then afterwards said, by the way, the ticket of this was thirty thousand pounds. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's only to hear one song. If you want to hear the other ones, it's more. That's right. <laughs> anyway, so he he got to read all that in that book. So that's pretty funny. That is really cool. Uh, okay, so now let's jump over to uh, our, of course, the intro and some aliens. Uh, so there's <laughs> there's some alien chat and uh, apparently uh, a bit of an experience that you've had, and and I'm I'm really interested because. I've had a very bizarre experience myself. I don't, I don't want to necessarily say aliens, but uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to let you shoot with yours first, though. Well, I've been seeing them forever. I mean, I've had alien invasion dreams since I was a really young kid, and uh, I'm going to get hypnotic regression done because these things keep coming back in my mind, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember it just came back to me about a year ago that every time I had a really bad nightmare as a child, I was getting out of my room at the end of the hall, walking in the dark, careful not to wake anybody up. And I'd go behind the Chesterfield, that old burgundy Chesterfield with the floral pattern that everybody had back in the fifties. And I used to play behind it mm -hmm. and I would crawl down. And at the end of it, this monster grabbed me and I looked up and I realize now that what I was looking at was one of those big eyed gray things, you know? Yep. But it would morph into my brother, my brother, Ted, and it would start tickling me. And then I would go into whatever nightmare I was going to have. And every single nightmare started like that. Interesting. So I've seen these things. I've seen them over the pyramids in Egypt, two balls of light in tandem doing the entire horizon in about five seconds and another couple hundred people saw them too wow. uh, my first wife and i coming back from the bahamas she looked out the window of the plane and she said greg what is that and sitting on that beautiful white fluffy cloud base was this cylindrical object it was pointed at the front and really round at the back and you couldn't really discern how big it was but it was huge it was like the size of a battleship or an aircraft carrier. It mm -hmm. was monstrous. And it was just sitting there. <laughs> and it looked like it was enveloped in this smoky gray smoke, but there was no exhaust. There was no lights. There was nothing. It was just hovering. I can almost imagine so, what that looks like. Uh, if you've ever seen well, the I, well, Flight of the Navigator. Just think of an ice cream cone made out of smoke on the, lying on its side. That's what okay. it looked like an ice cream cone. Yeah. And then I called ding, 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 and the stewardess came over. Well, we could still call them stewardesses, you know. Yep. The flight attendant, he said, politically correct, <laughs> came over. And I said, what's that? And she went, she looks out the window and she goes, holy shit. And she instantly <laughs> runs down to the front of the plane. But... <laughs> We, we watched it till it was out of sight because we were moving. We were, we're doing 500 miles an hour. This thing was just sitting there. Yeah. So we watched it till it was just a pinprick. And she kept walking by us. And finally, ding, ding, ding. And she came over and I said, so what was that? And she goes, what was what? <laughs> and I, I, I said, oh, come on. I said, you saw that as well as we did. <laughs> and I said, you know, if I had a gun, this is way before 9-11. I said, if I yeah. had a gun, we'd be on our way back there 
to have a look now. She says, don't even say that on this plane. And she disappears. When we land in Toronto, the captain comes on, tells us before people, before you start jumping up for your luggage and stuff, please stay in your seats. We've got a little bit of a problem. We're going to bring on another crew and we want to thank you for flying with us. And that whole flight crew was taken off the plane. Really? Now, why would they take a whole flight crew off the plane? Mm-hmm. To debrief them. Yeah. Right? And uh, the other crew came out on. And when I got out, I remember going up to the counter and saying, hey, I was on that flight and we saw something. And that stewardess saw it. And, and so we don't know. We have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I've seen them everywhere. You know, like, uh, I just had an experience about two months ago. The kid across the road said, did you hear those sounds out in front of the house last night? I went, no. So I went out the next night, you know, having a smoke. And all of a sudden, I hear these big clangy sounds, clank, clank, and they're moving. They're going across and down the street, and then they're going south, and then I could hear them fading, and then they're going east again, and then they come up, to, and the kid comes running. He, he says, that's what I heard last night. And he, I'm looking around. You can't see anything in the sky. I get out my phone. I start just randomly shooting in the sky, and I start taping it, and I got a really good recorder on my, my telephone. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it jumps behind us about four blocks. We can hear it bouncing off the apartment buildings in the back. Really? And I called my friends at MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network, uh, because I go to all their lectures and stuff. I know them all really well. All those guys on TV, you know, the the talking heads guys on Ancient Aliens. I know all those guys. Yeah. And uh, he says, if you hear it tomorrow night, get on the phone to us and we'll we'll get a crew down there. But he says, of course you're hearing it. He says, they follow you around. <laughs> but, I like mean, it. I've never heard anything in my life like this. And, and you know, people, I, I always say this when I'm doing these interviews, people are going to go, this guy's crazy. But no, I'm not. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty lucid guy, pretty smart guy. Yeah. Uh, what I see is what I see and what I hear. The funny thing, nothing showed up on my camera and no sound was recorded. Really? And these were loud. Yeah, these huge metallic. It sounded like this thing walking, you know, bang, bang. But you couldn't see it. You could just hear it, you know. That's but really the best one of all time, I was on a flight with my son. He was three years old at the time, uh, coming from Van- Vancouver to Toronto or Winnipeg to Toronto, one of those. And uh, we got on the plane. And it was a late night flight. It was a red eye. And I remember my son was all cranky and stuff. And we were in the front row. And there was a guy sitting at the the window seat. He didn't look at us. I didn't care. I was trying to get my kids settled. Mm-hmm. But we get up to cruising altitude and all the lights go down. And this guy turns to me. And I still haven't looked at him. He says, do you know what a Foo Fighter is? And I went, yeah, I know exactly what a Foo Fighter is. Now, we're not talking about the band. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I know Pat Smear's a friend of mine who's in the Foo Fighters, so I know another Foo Fighter besides what this But I, he was talking about, and I told him, in World War II, when the, the Allies were fighting the Nazis in dogfights over the English Channel, these balls of light would come flying in amongst them while they're machine gunning each other. And these guys would be freaking out because these things were like zapping in amongst and freaking all these guys out that were fighting up there. Yeah. The Germans thought it was the Americans. The Americans thought it was the Russians. The Russians, nobody thought it was the Canadians. I just want to point that out. But <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, anyway, uh, so I'm telling him about all my experiences. And I look down and I see his left hand sitting on his lap. 
and I, I'm, I'm now I'm staring at it. I've stopped talking. And as you guys can tell, getting me to stop talking is almost an impossibility. <laughs> I'm looking at this guy's hand and his fingers are that long. They're oh. 10 inches long. And wow. I'm, I'm just staring at this and going, this guy's not from around these parts and he's showing me that. And that's when I finally turned and looked him in the face and I passed out instantly. And when I woke up, we were deplaning. I don't remember seeing him again. I didn't remember him again for like 20 years. Mm, strange. Now, that wasn't like after a lot of uh, complimentary alcohol or anything, right? None. I was traveling with my three-year-old. None. <laughs> That's, not I a guess, drink. Yeah, if you're going to be on and, your and own. People always ask that, and, and as they should, knowing yeah, my background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, but, but that actually happened. I mean, you know, so once again, uh, Leslie Mitchell uh, Clark, uh, she's a hypnotherapist, a regressive hypnotist. Mm-hmm. And she's offered at one of these uh, ACE, the uh, alien conventions that, that all of us go to that believe in this stuff. Yeah. And she said, we would like to film you under hypnotic suggestion and or therapy and, and take you back to those times so that you can see what you were looking at, you know? Yeah, that'd be amazing. And I'm not nervous about it. I'm I'm quite anxious to do it this year. Yeah, that sounds really It'll cool. It'll be a whole other book I can write. <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, just the stories alone. Yeah. I know a lot of people who would love to hear uh, more about that. Uh, you know, people are also trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, I did have an experience when I was, um, I guess I was probably about 18 years old and, uh, I was, uh, totally fine one day. And then the next morning I go to stand up and I cannot put weight on my foot for no reason. Like I, I couldn't understand why, uh, eventually I go up, uh, to my parents' house and my dad, of course, who was a, a field medic, um, he went to look at it and he, drew out a uh, a piece of very odd colored wire about this long from my from my heel that went right into my foot and there was like absolutely no uh, all i know is i don't remember anything from the night before i just remember there being almost like a, a pulsing of a light just as i was falling asleep and i didn't i didn't move i didn't dream i woke up in the exact same position i went to sleep and, and then I, the, he pulled this thing out and he said it was the weirdest looking wire because it didn't look normal. It didn't look like steel. It didn't look like aluminum. It was just kind of a very odd thing. And he didn't, you know, we didn't think much of it. We kind of discarded it. And I always uh, kind of joked about like, I don't know. The only other thing I could think of is if I got picked up by aliens and they stuck something in me like a tracker or something, but. Well, I've got what? Do you? I've got an implant in the back of my brain. Yeah. Go on. When, when I told my doctor about it, uh, uh, and I told him the story about the guy on the plane, because that's when I figured it went in, is when I passed out, it, you know, either went in the nose or the mouth or the ear, and then went and embedded itself back there. And uh, I told my doctor, and he says, I'm going to send you for an MRI. Well, first I went for a CAT scan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's a picture of my brain in this book. And you can see the, the, the mouse pointing at this thing. And that's when the technician left the room to get another doctor in. And of course, that's when I go click, click, click and put them up on Facebook. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so so then my doctor gets me in and I tell him what it was, what I think it is. And he says, you're going to go for an MRI now. You are not to tell the technician this story because they will call the nutty people and they will take you away in a straitjacket. So I go into this place where I'm going to get the MRI. I said, uh, Look, you know, hypothetically, let's just 
hypothetically now, say you were sitting beside an alien on an airplane. And uh, when you realize this, and this is hypothetical, keep that in mind. Mm. Uh, he put uh, a little thing in, in your ear or your nose or something, and it went to live in the back of your brain. Just as hypothetical. She says, okay, well, this isn't hypothetical. She goes, this thing you're going into is the world's most, the strongest magnet <laughs> in a way that you could ever have your head put into. Yeah. So if this thing that you think you've got there has any metal in it, what's going to happen? And this is not hypothetical. This is her talking now. Yeah. It's going to come flying through your brain and through the top of your head. <laughs> so I said, uh, I think I said to myself, well, I was just kidding anyway, because I figured, you know, if it's advanced enough that they could do this kind of thing, and it, thousands of people have these, probably millions of people have these. I said, I'll take a chance. Yeah. And then my doctor called me in and he says, you know, I don't believe this either, but you have a foreign object in, down in the back of your your brain down there and they don't know what it is and it's not metal but they don't know what it is i said so do they say anything about removing it they said yeah they'd have to take your head apart to get it out oh jeez you know what it doesn't hurt i think i'll just keep it with me you know yeah 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 that's uh so i, I know i know your people that are watching this right now think i thought this guy used to be a serious rock musician he's nuts <laughs> he's nuts and i have a great i have a great story called aliens amoi Aliens, E.T., mm -hmm. there's the big joke, moi, French, aliens and me, uh, in this book. And it's the longest story uh, in, in the book because I'm really into this stuff, you know, and uh, and I've been fortunate enough my whole life to have seen these things like in the sky and coming home late at night and I see this blue orb stationary and I thought, that's weird. And I stop my car and all of a sudden it turns red and starts doing this, you know, and then it stops again and it goes blue and, you know, <laughs> I thought to myself, wow. you know, if I could see it, it could probably see me. It's four o'clock in the morning on a country road and I'm out of there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, I do have a question. When you saw these things, how many of them were in Canada? Quite a few. Really? I mean, I, I've seen them. I've seen them in Egypt. I've seen them in, in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. I've seen them in the Dominican. Uh, a, a couple of them in Ontario, for sure, up north, traveling. Okay. Um, out west in the, the mountains, in in uh, when I was writing my book out in uh, Canmore, the, the guy, the UFO guys, say we call you a, a magnet. So they follow you around. I, I there's this incredible place in uh, Sasua in the Dominican Republic, and my hosts down there said when I got talking about this stuff, they said we've got to take you and show you something, and he drove me up this hill that I never would have tried to walk up in downtown Sasua. Nothing was up there except for about a 50,000 foot square foot alien castle. <laughs> All the spires had UFOs on the top of them. It's called Castillo Mundo King. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went in and then we ran into Rolf, this old German dude that built the place. And uh, Rolf gets visited by these things all the time. So at one point, point when he realizes that I'm sort of a contactee as well, he takes us up to this little tiny room where he lives at the top and goes rooting through this box and brings out a, like a marble, like the big ones we used to play. You'd have the little ones and then the Aggies. Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, uh, it was opaque. It was amber colored. You could see there was something inside of it, but you couldn't really see what it is. Mm -hmm. And I said, what is that? And he, he goes, this is what the spacecrafts are made of. And he, he says, hold out your hand. I'll knock it off with the German scientist uh, 
<laughs> accent. He puts it in my hand and he says, drop it. And I dropped it and the thing bounced over my head, just dropping it at waist level. Now that, wow. that defies everything that we know about physics and gravity, everything. You'd have to throw this. It would have to be like an Indian rubber ball that you would over your head, jump up and throw it to get it to go over your head. Mm -hmm. But I just dropped it and it went bang. And then he said, this is what's our spacecraft I'm made of, you know? Yeah. They gave it to him. And I said to him, you know, uh, have you seen them? He goes, no, I, I never. He says, but when, uh, when they're in my presence, I can smell them. And uh, he says, they, they communicate telepathically with me. I said, what do they want? He goes, well, they're going to destroy us. I said, why? He goes, because we're in the way. <laughs> now, he died a couple years ago. Uh, they were supposed to be looking after him, but he died of starvation. So jeez, oh, they weren't doing a very good job of looking after him. You know? What happened but to this the This place ball? is real. I, well, I went down there with my daughter a couple years ago, and her girlfriend came with us who spoke uh, Cajun. Mm. And the, the only kid that worked in the place was a kid from Haiti. Most of the Haitians are terrified to go in this place. It's a pretty spooky place. Yeah. And this girl was hot, and she started flirting with this guy to find out stuff. And the next thing, you know, we're up in the guy's room going through the boxes trying to find it because I said, I'll buy that off you if we could find it, mm -hmm. you know. But you should check it out. It's called, and any you know viewers out there, if you think I'm completely nuts, you got to see what this guy built. Uh, it's called Castillo Mundo King. So it's C A S T I L L O M U N D O King. Castillo, Castillo Mundo, Mundo King. King. Okay. And you can go down there. Guy comes out. They grab five, you know, piachos or whatever the. Hell money is down there uh pesos and then in you go and you can walk around for hours in this and it, it's it's loaded with incredible uh, haitian carvings and you there's one galley with like four 40 foot ufo models in it you know it's like it's just the craziest place yeah that's crazy wow that is really interesting i you know we, it's funny because we always ask uh, like 20 questions to our our uh, guests and uh the most important one to me is do you believe in aliens and uh and I'm always amazed um, when I come across one or two people who say no. It, it it boggles my mind how how you could think you're the only person or the only species in the entire galaxy. Actually, you know, I'm suspecting right now that Ferdy is an alien. I, I'm seeing that look in his eyes, like <laughs> he knows quiet, too much. <laughs> yeah, quiet Earthling, you're telling you're telling too much. Here. <laughs> He's just got those. God those eyes born to us. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I'm not a cat guy. In fact, cats are like my both books. It's like they're my nemesis, right? You know. So we well, have two cats. cats. Are aliens. Yeah. I mean, right I've, been, I've been abducted by cats for 50 years. I mean, that's a, there you yeah. go. Then you then you know it's true. I have this little girl cat. Uh, we have a big fat cat, and I mean, he, this guy's square. Okay, uh, his, his <laughs> name is. Ted. Tesla, okay, the smartest guy that oh, ever lived. Nice. Yeah, this cat is the dumbest creature on the planet. You know, uh, which Do you is like Jacob's ladders, like arc out of him and stuff like that. Is that what you call? Him <laughs> no, Tesla? it's the little girl that does that, and she she loves me, but she sits with her <laughs> face right here, and you know she's got she's got fangs and claws and things, and she's like right beside my eyeballs and stuff, and I go, I know what you're doing. Those antenna, you're reporting everything you see and do back to the mothership. I'm on to you. Of course they are. Right? They are. Yeah. 
That's, I, I agree. Those are antenna coming out of their face. They're just. Maybe, that'll maybe, be my next book, actually. Is the maybe she was just cats. waiting for you to open hey, your you're mouth? You're preaching to the choir here, Greg. I've known this for decades. <laughs> maybe, maybe the the cat's just waiting for you to open your mouth so she can get that communication device at the back of your head. Yeah, just yeah, right. Just to zap in there and right. tear it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm quite is- happy with it there because I'm sure a lot of the things that I've thought up over the years didn't. I've always said, you know, I don't know where my songs come from. Mm-hmm. You know, they just appear in my head. So whoever these aliens are, I wish they give me some better lyrics. You know, <laughs> I, I really could, I could use some better lyrics. Maybe you just need a better translator for what they're telling you. <laughs> yeah, maybe "Oh Carol, Kiss My Whip" means something. <laughs> it does to Carol Pope, doesn't it? It does to her. Maybe "Let That Lizard Loose" is like a secret for discovering the the cure for cancer or something. Really, I thought that was more of a. Of an earthy Dylan-esque metaphor. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> I, I have a story in the new book about uh, I I got a I was on the Facebook one day when this I get a friend request from Bob Dylan. Okay. Oh. So you know I'm looking at the screen friend requests from Bob Dylan. Do I know Bob Dylan? No. <laughs> Does he know? No, he doesn't know. So. I write back. I happen to know that my good friend Paul James, who who Dylan has been following around for years, he shows up at Paul's club gigs. He pays his his five dollars and he hides in the back <laughs> and he he goes to policemen's benevolent gigs that Paul's doing. And Paul looks over the side and in the curtains, Dylan's standing there. So he does stuff like that. And this is for real. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm thinking, there's no way this is. Bad. So I said, Hey, I've got a question for you. You just signed a mutual friend of both of ours to tour with your new band. Who is it? Simple enough question, right? It's nothing offensive there. Yeah. He writes back, "Do you have do you have a functioning brain?" <laughs> That's what he writes back. I just did it in his voice, but yeah, do you have a functioning brain? Do I have a functioning brain? So I have another half a bottle of wine. Now my brain is really working. Okay. (laughs) And and I write him back and I said, listen, asshole, people don't even believe it's me on Facebook. And I'm supposed to believe some idiot that tells me he's Bob Dylan and then insults me. I said, as far as I said, the answer to the question is Paul James. And as far as how my mind works, ask Gordon Lightfoot or Ronnie Hawkins the next time you see him, you, it was Bob Dylan. (laughs) So did you accept his friend request after all that? No. He, he, <laughs> he got rid of me. So the next thing I did was I went on his Facebook, his brand new Facebook thing, and there's an explanation saying, my son Jacob says that I'm totally out of touch with what's going on. So I've decided this little experiment. Now, had I read that first, I wouldn't have told Bob Dylan that he was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so... I that week we're doing a we're doing a John Lennon annual tribute down at Jeff Ely's club and I'm on Q107 talking about it. So of course what do I do? I tell the story of the Bob Dylan story because we have a, an event and people are going I'm attending. I'm attending. Bob Dylan apparently is going to attend. He's now watching me and says I'm attending. So of course I tell this story and the gig sells out like crazy because they're all expecting Dylan to show up. Yeah. I mean, who, who cares if I'm singing John Lennon? If Bob Dylan shows up, we'll get him up. 
So I said, listen, if you come to the show, just look to the left and look to the right, and you never know who the heck's going to be sitting next to you. But anyway, that's the end of that that little story. But I, I did actually call Bob Dylan an asshole. <laughs> I thought you were going to oh, say he that. He deserves a bit of humility every now and then. He well, you know, right. Canada for doing that. My mother worked at the Friars Tavern. That story is in this book. Uh, my mother worked at the Friars Tavern at Young and Dundas Square when I was a kid, when I was 13, just starting out. And uh, I would go every Saturday afternoon and I would watch Levon and the Hawks play. You know, they play there. Ronnie Hawkins came in there. David Clayton Thomas. I'm only 13 years old and I'm meeting all these guys that are going to be legends, you know? Wow. And uh, in fact, my mother bought my first bass amp off Rick Danko. Rick Rick insisted that I had bass, I, I had bass player fingers. So then, of course, after I went, wow, I have a bass player. Rick Danko, mom says I have bass player. And then he sold her an amp of his for 300 bucks, which I, I had. But uh, one night I came back from Yorkville when I was about 17 years old. My mother was still working there. And she says, uh, do you know a guy named Bob Dylan? No, I didn't at the time, and I had no intention of calling him, you know, that word. Again. So <laughs> I said, "I said, well, I know who he is, Mom. She goes, well, he's been hanging around the club with Levon and the boys the last couple of nights. And tonight when we closed, Mr. Josie, who was the, the guy that ran the place, great guy, guy to be respected, uh, he says, she, she says, he let them jam. And, and 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 this Bob Dylan guy got up and sang with uh, with Levon and, and Robbie, and she goes, "He's not much of a singer." <laughs> and she was absolutely right. She was absolutely <laughs> right. But boy, oh, trust trust us, God of its family, to call them like we see them. You know, right. we don't care how big they are. You it's know? true. It's true. Yeah. Bob God Dylan, bless. salt yeah. of the earth. Yep. You you can't sing, and you're an asshole. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Probably, probably. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's like you're not saying anything incorrect. <laughs> well, like I said, we call them like we see them in our family. You know, just... <laughs> well, it's good because you know this way you can easily say that you know you're one of probably few people who've actually outright just called him an asshole to his face. <laughs> well, well, on you know Facebook, face, Facebook. Well, that's face, close. Face. To that that's the new face nowadays, right? <laughs> do, do you know when I joined? I was one of the earliest people to join Facebook because I saw. Leslie Stahl talking about it on 60 Minutes. So I sign up, and my first my first uh, uh, friend, Facebook pal, is Mark Zuckerberg. Really? And I'm looking at this guy and going, who the hell is this nerd? <laughs> I don't know this guy. <laughs> I didn't ask for – that was my first friend on Facebook. That's and funny. Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes was my second. I told her I knew J.D. Roberts, John Roberts, that used to be with Much Music, and now he was, you know, now the presidents knew who he was, you know, yeah, CBS yeah. News. Uh, I mean, they both quickly dumped me pretty fast after they saw what I was up to. Mark just started the scene. I would have loved I'm to. I'm sure they look at Every once in a while. I mean, I, I'm the guy, I'm, sh I'm positive I invented the expression waste book. I'm pretty sure I was the first guy that ever called it waste book. <laughs> you know, I, I would have loved that moment you're looking at and you're like, Mark Zuckerberg, well, who's this nerd? Decline. <laughs> yeah, he just looked like a nerd. You know, and I think, I don't know anybody that looks like that. 
They hang out with aliens and stuff. Man. I'm not going <laughs> to hang out with this guy. He's got, he's got one of those clips with his pencils in it up here in his uh, pocket. The old you know? pocket protector. Wow. The pocket protector. Yeah, he's got one of those. He's got two of them, in fact. You know? Oh, jeez. I, I thought it was a brassiere when I first saw it. Then I realized it was pens sticking out of it. You know? <laughs> so, uh, just speaking of bases, as both both bass players yourselves, uh, Ferdy and I were kind of looking at something. Ferdy, do you want to do you want to take a moment to uh, show Greg what you were showing me earlier? Oh no! Please, <laughs> not that, Freddie. <laughs> no, 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 uh, Greg. Does this look infected to you? Yeah. No, no. It's like, no, I got the, actually, Greg. I like to show you my very first bass guitar that I got in 1989. Very nice. Look at that. Was it painted uh, like that? profile copy of like a Jackson or something like that. But, yeah, and what, what, my, my friend, my friend, uh, sanded it down and did the did the zombie illustration on it and all of that. So and, what's you know, the what's the make of it? Profile, right? It's like it's like a Sears catalog yeah. entry level student model base, three quarter size, you know, short scale, like thirty one inch, like like the Gibson EB threes that I think you used to play at one time. But I've got, it's funny that you, I wish I had known this was coming because in my Beatles room downstairs, I have my very first bass that my father bought me for $50. And it is, it a, is, it, is it like a Hofner copy or something like that? No, it's a Supro pocket bass. So it's, it's about oh, this big. Yeah. Wow. Eddie Kramer was over here. He's, he's a great friend of mine. And he looked oh, at nice. it. He says, these guitars, these basses record because there's a Piazzo pickup in the back. And then there's another yeah. one in the back. And then there's another, like a humbucker in the front of it. But I couldn't play it back then because I couldn't play. I can't play it now because it's too small to play. <laughs> it's like a little toy. I mean, it's it's literally about, hang on, if I can get it all. It's it's about that long. I mean, it's it's like a toy. Wow. Then but, you put it on a hook on the wall. And then it's, when it's you're busy, in the, you know, with your brandy snifter, you tell your friends, this look is at my, that. I saw this that is my, I was going to be a star. Yeah. <laughs> It came, it came back to me 50 years later after – I don't even remember how it left my life. I was probably going up the to the – The very same bass came back? The very same one. I, they, they told me at a music store in Toronto, we got something here you might be interested in. And they read about it in this, my description. Yeah. I said it was a three-quarter scale, but I didn't know that it was a pocket bass. So it was basically smaller neck than the one you've got there, half the size. Oh, wow. wow. And it was jet black, high gloss, but they had a, a thing where you could, if you played with your thumb, you can do this and play with your thumb. Or if you played with your fingers, you could hold the thumb thing and play with your fingers on the top and bottom of it. And right, underneath right. mine, okay. so it like, was like the, old, like the old Fender Precisions where you'd be able exactly. to have like the thumb ramp on the underside. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I got that back. Now, my dad paid 50 bucks for it. I probably traded it in on the Echo uh, violin shaped bass that everybody because you couldn't find a Hofner back then you couldn't find a Hofner Beetle bass. Yeah, but the, the Echo was like that was like that was like an Italian uh, Beetle bass sort of thing, wasn't it? Or Japanese was it? I can't quite remember. Echo was Italian, right? Okay, because yeah, my 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 friend's mom had one. I remember like a like a violin bass, and and that's the thing. Yeah, you're right. Nobody could get Hofners, and they were no. bloody expensive because they were a German import. Yeah, to be in England to get yeah. them. Yeah, eventually, uh, I think George Heinel Music on Young Street finally got them in, and they were expensive for kids. I mean, I was only 13 when I started, so we would go down there, 
Hello, Matthew. You got some guy named Matthew skulking around in there. With <laughs> yeah. That's that's our regular co-host, <laughs> Matty G. Hello. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, you're not. You, you know, I'm sorry you're not here to help these guys out, Matthew. It's all I'm saying. They miss you. All right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, we used to go down there, Brian Pilling and I, and uh, from you know, our first band, The Pretty Ones, and then uh, uh, Flood, and we would just look in the in the window and stare at it. You know. They had Beatle harmonicas in the case and stuff, you know. And oh, I, I want to quickly you talk amongst yourself for one minute. I want to show you something interesting. Yeah. Okay. I always find it very Sounds interesting um, with, uh, you know, stories of, of instruments that make their way back to people. We had Miles Goodwin on the show from April Wine. And uh, right. the, the, the story about his uh, guitar, how it basically had fallen off the back of a truck during uh, a teardown. And something like twenty years later, it made its way back to him. Someone yeah, had he found got it, it back. Yeah, yeah. So it was great story. Awesome. Yeah. This here, uh, speaking of uh, the pillings, I mean, uh, can you read that? Just barely. Yeah, what there's is just that? a little bit of a shine it, on it. It's hard to see. It says Beat Group at the top. Yeah. The pretty ones. Okay. And then it's got my mom. Call Greg or Ed. That would be Ed Pilling. This is our business card from 1964. Wow. Nice. That's very cool. I collected everything. Uh, Pat Little, the great drummer for Luke and the Apostles, who eventually uh, joined Flood, his lovely wife, Kathy, I don't know how the hell she got that. Uh, They've been around the music scene a long time. And she gifted that to me when I I met her and Pat when when they came back into my life. And I mean, it's just a treasured memento because that's the earliest piece of of, uh, my own memorabilia that I've got. Mm. Very, very cool. It's always, ama- it's always amazing. That's so sweet. I have a I have a big sprawling archive as well. I try and keep mementos as well. That's so Everything. awesome. You have that. I've got. I had twenty two boxes of memorabilia that now reside in the University of Toronto archives. Really? And, Are uh, you saying there's a Gatto wing at the University of Toronto? Well, people could. They, this girl spent six months itemizing everything. I've, I've got these sheets this big, and there's about a hundred of them with everything completely museum quality curated. It's it's wow. unbelievable. They said to me, "This is the most comprehensive collection we've ever seen." She said, "You kept everything, everything that you ever did in your career. You, you kept it, you know." You know, and and there's like there's fan letters, and there's ticket stubs, and there's posters, and. Like here's here's a piece of my collection that we actually sell repros of. I haven't shown you this yet. This is Gatto with special guests. The guess who? Wow! With special guests, the guess who? <laughs> they were yeah. opening for Gatto. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's now, amazing. Now it was Burton. Burton and Randy weren't there, but uh, Jimmy and Gary Peterson were still there, and Donnie McDougal, who sounds so much like Cummings, it's ridiculous. In fact. When Cummings came back, McDougal stayed in because it, they could do harmonies and it sounded like Burton singing with himself. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they had another, it could have been Kurt Winter or one of those guys that was playing guitar. But we, we were hot. This is 1978. This is when we were, you know, uh, with, with Baldry's management and stuff and we were really making waves. And we came back after a tour and did this concert at Minkler Auditorium, which is a beautiful uh, soft seat probably held about 2000 people at uh, uh, one of the universities and Jimmy Kale came up to me and we've known each other for years. Every time I go to Winnipeg, we still get together at the Rotunda bar at the Fort Gary and talk about Bert 
Captain Cummings <laughs> for a couple of hours while we're drinking. And, uh, and he loves that. He says, you're the only guy I'll leave the house for. He says, because I know what I'm going to get. And then we just sit there laughing all night and making fun of people. Bert Cummings. And uh, he came up to me and he says, I said to him, I said, Jimmy, I feel really weird about this, man. You know, you like, you know, that uh, you're opening for us. And he, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, it's okay, Greg. This is your 50 minutes of fame. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> Nice. I mean, he was such a humble, great guy. And he's still, like I said, I, I talked to him over Christmas because, you know, we couldn't see each other. Uh, he's still alive and doing well. And, he, you know, basically when you're coming back to Winnipeg, because he doesn't leave his house. But if I'm in town and say, hey, Jimmy, it's Godovitz. You want to come and hang out at the Rotunda Bar and uh, drink and talk about people? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. <laughs> he shows- <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's very, very cool. Now, you know, I gotta- Greg, I have to say, I first met you almost 30 years ago to the very day. Really? You don't remember this. It was March 8th, 1991. And uh, my friends and I had driven through a blizzard to get up to Edmonton to go see Iron Maiden play at the Northlands Agricom that night. And so after the Iron Maiden concert, our ears were ringing. You know, we were, you know, we still had the refrain of run to the hills echoing in our brain. And of course, but it was only 11 o'clock. And we yeah. said, we got, we got, we're in Edmonton. We got to go party. So of course, and I was like, I was only, I was 19 years old and I was only about three weeks away from my 20th birthday. And so we started going up White Avenue. And of course, like White Avenue is packed full of people and there's signs flashing and the neons all lit up and there's all these marquees for all these nightclubs. And then I'm squinting out there trying to look for something. And then I see on the sign, like live tonight, Gotto. And so I, I saw my buddy who was driving the car, like I'm pulling on his sleeve, and I said, yeah, fucking right. We're going to go see Gatto. Look, let's go. It's a $15 cover. We got to go see Gatto. He's like, well, what, what, fuck, who the fuck's Gatto? Pull in, you heathen. I'll teach you. And so, and so like we pull in and we, you know, we get in there and we're all these like scruffy teenage long-haired dirtbags from the East Kootenays of British My people. <laughs> yes, yes. Huzzah. And so... We pay our 15 bucks and, you know, and there, and, and we got there, like, seriously, we just had time to get in, pay our due, pay our ticket, get our first beer, you know, and then the lights come on and, and, you know, and you guys kick into it right away and you guys just killed it for the next 90 minutes straight. And I was just going, oh my God, this is so awesome. Oh, Carol, kiss my whip, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, <laughs> And then afterwards, Thank I just like uh, I have to, I have to, you know, I I went up and it's like, Greg, Greg, it's so nice to meet you, you know. And you were very polite, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, good to meet you there, kid. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. It's like now that like all this like you know grunge and hard rock is all like you know is is all like getting back in vogue again. Now's the time for Gato to conquer Canada once again, you know. And and I I know I couldn't really tell if you were glaring at me behind your you know tinted. Uh, john lennon specs or anything like that but you were very you were very polite you were very good well, about it. you were just like yo there there son yeah okay thanks <laughs> no 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 we i i don't think i can find anybody that could say i did this to hurt anybody or offend i was all, I'm, i mean i'm glaring at you now through my job i'm old now i can i can glare all i want the, oh, the uh, but like i always really took 
took the time to talk to the, because I was that guy once. I remember meeting Ronnie Hawkins and those guys when I was 13 and, you know, or, or the kindness that some of those guys had ended up as, as legends showed me. And I always thought that if I ever got in that position, I'm going to be nice and humble to these guys. They're the guys that are paying our bills. Yeah. And I, I had that attitude. There was recently a guy, they were talking about this uh, tribute record I did for Brian Pilling to make him some, his family some money when he was dying. And this guy wrote, in my 45-year career, I've never met a bigger asshole than Greg Godovitz. And I'm thinking, well, this is on a post about me helping out a dying guy. And I, I went and looked at his thing, and I wrote him in private, you know, because I don't like washing that thing. I said, dude, I, I don't even know who you are. I said, and if you're claiming that you've got a 45-year career in music, why don't I know who you are? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So enjoy your trip into cyberspace and <laughs> off he went. <laughs> I just wanted to, to know that he was going into cyberspace on my friend account, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's not fair, but we, I was always really, I would talk to everybody, you know, or if I went outside to have a smoke when there was kids out there that couldn't get in, I'd say, how come you guys aren't in? We don't have tickets. Come on with me. And I'd sneak them all in the back door. You know, <laughs> that's amazing. We, we, we were really, I was anyway, I don't know what the other guys, I never saw them on the road, but I was always into talking to the kids and finding out what, you know, what they were thinking, what they liked and stuff, you know? And it, it's stuff that I've passed on to other musicians as I've been mentoring them as a, as an adult, you know? Wow. What a lovely so, guy. So, <laughs> amazing. So I, I, now I've got to put you on the, the spot, Ferdy. Uh, I have to ask you. What, what was more memorable, the the Zeppelin concert or the Gatto concert? <laughs> it would have the, to be the Iron Maiden concert or the uh, or the, sorry, uh, Iron Maiden. Yes, <laughs> it's like no, no, no. Our, no, I was too young to see Zeppelin, yeah. but uh, Iron Maiden were great. That was the first time I saw them. But again, like uh, but it was just and Gatto were great too. What can I say, Greg? But it was I totally thought I, I felt, yeah. but I but again, like it was it was two separate. Two separate bands, two separate sets of music. But again, like they, they both, all both bands killed it. Mm-hmm. It was great to see. I mean, it was great to be in that Coliseum with, you know, 10,000 of my best friends watching, yeah. you know, Bruce Dickinson run around on stage with his four octave histrionics and watching the big 20 foot robot Eddie clanking around. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I pumped my fist to Number of the Beast. I did my part. But then afterwards, <laughs> I thought it was an amazing, like, I don't know, a second act to my night of rock and roll out of town debauchery because I'm, I'm surprised found- I'm surprised that Iron Maiden did come to our show afterwards because that's usually what happened. Yeah. When when we were playing someplace and there was a big band in town, they'd say, Where do we go? And they go, Go see these guys. Hmm. You know, I, I remember Cheap Trick came in to see us one night. They wouldn't let oh, them nice. in. Very cool. So this oh. Uber groupie that I knew was in front of me while we're playing at the gasworks. And uh, she says, I got Rick and Robin in a limousine out there. They won't let them in. So I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. So I go out front. I meet Rick and Robin. Come on in. Uh, I said, you guys want to sit in? And they look at each other. What? Yeah, yeah, we want to sit in. I said, well, what do you want to do? And Rick says, I'll do lights. And Robin says, I'll do sound. And all night they did lights and sound for us. Wow. That's so awesome. That's well, crazy. that doesn't surprise me. Any any story I've ever heard about those guys, like they're supposed to be the nicest guys on the planet. Really nice guys. Yeah. Wow. And then we had Black Sabbath come in for a whole week when they were in town recording. 
Oh Jesus! Oh yeah. Greg, I just Greg, I just can't fucking think well, anymore. All of them were there. The guys, they were at Sounds Interchange where we did the Who Cares album, and uh, they were a little bit out of it. So they were doing things like, "It's not working. Let's tear up all the carpeting in the whole place." You know, of course, that didn't work. And but every night, Ozzy would come up to me and say, "Why don't you come back to the hotel? You were having a bit of a party." And I said, well, actually, I got something to do. So he, he was sort of intrigued why this guy who should be falling all over doesn't give a rat's ass. You know, I was doing, I was picking up my own girl and stuff, you know, stuff that I, this little rock star did. So the last night, they'd been there for six nights in a row. And Ozzy comes up and he says to me, don't you like me? And I said, yeah, I like you just fine. He goes, well, how come you won't come and have a drink? You know, I said, well, tonight's the night's. So Bob Segarini and I go to Ozzy's hotel room. There's a, uh, a glass top table. Oh, how convenient. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ozzy yeah, pulls out the hors d'oeuvres. You know, <laughs> and we're drinking and, you know, hors d'oeuvring <laughs> on the glass top table. Segarini uh, gets up to tie his shoe, and he's got one of those old stubby beer bottles underneath his armpit, which falls through the glass top table, oh, shatters no. it. And then Ozzy became the guy that we grew to love. He went, they're going to think I did that. <laughs> they're going to make me pay for that. You did it. They're going to make me pay for that. Now, all the orders were, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not stupid. Glass top table is broken. The hors d'oeuvres have all been hors And there's no more beer. Good night, Ozzy. <laughs> Time to get out. <laughs> and we left. <laughs> and in his book, it was funny because I saw his book and I opened it up and I opened it up to the page where he's talking about hanging around the gas works, you know, for a week. Did we get mentioned? No. Any mention of me coming to his hotel room and Bob Sagarini breaking his glass top table with the hors d'oeuvres? No. He left it all out. So I put it in my book instead. Nice. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you, Ozzy. <laughs> History <laughs> needs to be chronicled. That's right. That's right. It does. Fortunately, I remember more things than he does, obviously. So <laughs> should write up Ozzy. But, I didn't get in your book. You know, now I, I don't like you. <laughs> I got a million of these stories, you know, because and, and they're all true. I mean, we, we just had some insane uh, experiences with either big people or guys on the way up that became big people. And, you know, wow. now, now I say like Eddie Kramer, uh, he was working on the El Combo restoration like I was mm -hmm. three years ago. I was doing curatorial things, finding, you know, memorabilia and posters and stuff and getting them framed. And he was building with John Storick. He was building uh, Electric Lady North. They were they were doing exactly like the studio they built for Hendrix. Mm -hmm. uh, I left over some something going sideways. I quit right on the spot. Two weeks later, Eddie quits, but he stays in Toronto and we become great friends. Uh, his wife, AJ, at first, Eddie didn't like me because the guy that owned the Elmo got Eddie Kramer, who's like, you know, 78 years old, out of bed at midnight to come to the derelict Elmo combo to meet me. <laughs> Was he impressed? No. <laughs> uh, so the guy says, you know, Greg Godovitz, Eddie Kramer, and I'm Eddie Kramer. <laughs> My head's like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. Is Eddie Kramer? Eddie Kramer? Are you kidding me? And he, he, I shake his hand. He looks at the boss guy and he says, "Are we finished?" And then he leaves. He hated my guts. Then we go to New York. Yeah, wouldn't talk to me. He was dismissing me 
like just go away, you know. Yeah. But oh, his no. wife AJ, his wife AJ said, you know, Eddie, this guy is a really nice guy. He doesn't want anything for you. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He'll give you the sleeve off of his shirt. And he's a really talented guy. And Eddie started started going, yeah, you know. And now we we talk every day on the phone. Uh, they moved to the place where I finished writing this book uh, in Prince Edward County because they would come down and visit. And my friends always say to me, you must pick his brain like crazy. And I said, no. They said, well, what do you talk to Eddie Kramer about? I said, hey, Eddie, uh, you're putting too much garlic in the sauce. That's what we talk about. <laughs> we talk about normal things. You know, he yeah. knows what I do. I know what he's done. Am I impressed? Damn right. But, you know, he's got enough people doing this to him every time they meet him, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I'm not that guy. But, yeah, we hang out all the time. He actually remixed the first Gatto album for me as a, as a gift for free. Really? So oh, nice. That's, that's going to come out this year. Now, you, you can find that on my YouTube. I have a Greg Gottovich YouTube channel, and the Eddie Kramer remix is up there. And I would highly advise anybody that goes to find it tonight, put headphones on. Because, okay. of course, he was always known for that swirling panorama of sound, you know. <laughs> but all of a sudden now there's a bass guitar in there, which wasn't there before. And there's a huge mini Moog synthesizer. And wow. the whole album with the rockier stuff, which I always hated. I, thought, I, I produced it. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, now it sounds like Led Zeppelin with my little voice singing on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. And we're going to put it out in, uh, on vinyl this year. With Eddie and I will sign the copies and, you know, charge $5,000 a copy for them. Fantastic. Sweet. I'll buy one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need, I need Did you guys get any questions? Did any questions come in except from Michael? Did... Uh, no, actually. From Matthew, no, actually. I'm really surprised. It's well, been, I think okay, there's, there's well, just so much going on in the story. Questions, maybe yeah. I can ask you a few questions. Please, Yeah, because nobody, nobody in your audience appears to like me. Yeah. So. No, you know what I think it is? It's just like you, you've got so much amazing stories. It's just kind of kept like I, myself. I would normally try to interject and ask so many things, but I'm just so like, wow, these stories are amazing. So you just kind of want to listen. So. Dude, surely there must be one guy out there that says, aren't you my dad? <laughs> my, mom, my mom told me that you're my dad <laughs> i don't know if that uh, our show should be that moment <laughs> i've had it happen when i'm playing live oh boy I, this guy said hey, i gotta talk to you i said i don't know if you notice i'm in the middle of a show i really gotta talk to you uh, i said i'm in the middle of a show he says i think i'm your son i said we'll be right back <laughs> and it wasn't you know. oh <laughs> okay Freddie, you got the you got the floor yeah. my friend so I understand when you were playing in Sherman and Peabody that one of your bandmates was Gil Moore of Triumph. Is in the true? second, in the second round of Sherman and Peabody, that's true. Uh, okay. The original band was the guys that I would I'd been in the blues band with, uh, and that was uh, John Bjarnason and Wayne Wilson that ended up in Whiskey Howl, which was one of the great Toronto blues bands, and Buzz Sherman was singing in that band. And then I played bass and Dave Wood played guitar. We had a guy, Peter Flaherty, that played uh, B3 organ. When that went its way, uh, we put a four-piece version of the band together uh, with myself. Uh, Dave Wood was still there. Gilmore. And one other guy whose name escapes me. And and that lasted. And Gil and I, I mean, he, he was destined for to be a success. Me, I was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So we had a falling out, and and the last thing he said oh. to me, he says, Godovitz, he goes, you make it your 
your way and I'll make it mine. And damned if he didn't go ahead and do it. Wow. And we laugh about it now because we're still great friends after all these years. And and when they were Good. starting to do a documentary, no, Gil and I are great friends. We don't care. We don't care about stuff like that. I mean, that what happens when you're 18 years old? I mean, you know, if you if you worry about it now, you're just a goof, you know. Yeah. So no, no. Anybody ever had any problems with back in those days has been resolved. Where we go, hey, you know, I was 15 years old. I was an idiot. Okay, yeah. I admit it. Forgive me. <laughs> okay, I forgive you after they hit you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But yeah, yeah, Gil played in the band and we're still friends. And uh, he has a great studio that I've recorded at at Metalworks many times. Very amazing. Nice. Uh, quick question for you then. Of all the people that you have now met over your career, who has been the most impressive? Like, who are you just looking at? And you're like, this is this is like the greatest day of my life. Well, there's there's been so many. I mean, I've, I've pretty much met everybody. Uh, you know, I met three Rolling Stones. I met two Beatles. I met a couple of Kinks. You know, I met Jerry and the Pacemakers and, you know, a couple of Led Zeppelins. And I met everybody. Mm -hmm. But I have to say meeting Paul McCartney for me was the big one. I mean, the girl I was going to the show with had babysat for Paul and Linda at their house in St. John's Wood in London. And she called me up the night before and said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I got two tickets for Paul McCartney. Do you want to go? Let me check. Yes. <laughs> and she says, you know, dress up a little bit, you know, I thought, well, what am, what am I chopped liver? I mean, <laughs> so I wore a suit. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen. And I'll see if I can find it while we're, we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, we get there and I said, why are we here so early? She says, we're going backstage. You're going to meet him. And I said, how long have you known this? She goes, for about a month. But I knew that if I told you, you wouldn't sleep. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> so I got my suit on. And we run into Doug Inglis out in front. And, and Doug looks a lot like Paul McCartney. And he says, uh, where are you going? I said, we're going to go meet Paul McCartney. He goes, I'm with you. <laughs> so he didn't even have a ticket. And we, <laughs> we get into Paul's dressing room. And it was like it was like seeing a cousin. I, I'm only looking down, folks, because I'm looking for something. My, my picture with Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm. Uh, it was like seeing a relative standing there. Here we go. Here's the picture. Here, this is. I don't know if you can see that. I yeah. got to figure out how we could. Yeah. So there's Paul, and there's Doug Taller, and behind him, and there's uh, Linda, and Alwyn, the blonde girl, is the girl I took, and there's me holding on to Paul McCartney's arm, and I have a look of joy on my face I've never seen before or since because I realized I was holding on to Paul McCartney's arm. Wow. So we talked for about a half an hour. And uh, I ne never mentioned the Beatles once to him. Mm -hmm. um, I'd found this photograph of him holding his bass up. And he goes, well, that's an old picture. You know, that's me tuning me bass, you know. And I thought, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you're doing here. So he signed it for me to Greg, Paul. And the McCartney part was on his jacket. And I was going to say, what are you, stupid? I said, couldn't you have signed McCartney over there in the blank spot? Now it says to Greg, Paul, bleh. that's all it says. <laughs> but it does, it, he did write it, so I let him get away with it. Yeah. D Doug has got the same magazine, and he holds up the picture, and uh, Paul says, what's your name? And he goes, bleh. He's, excuse me? <laughs> he couldn't talk. <laughs> he couldn't talk. So after the third time, I said, 
His name is Doug. And and McCartney looks at me and goes, thanks, Greg. And he writes to Doug. <laughs> does the thing. So when we left the building, it was at the Skydome. We're outside and I run into a scalper friend of mine named Bobby A. And uh, he says, uh, Chris, you look like you just ate the canary, you know. I said, well, I've just spent a half an hour with uh, Paul McCartney. Oh, at the, hang on. I got to backtrack. While we were talking about baseball, uh, I was telling you about the Blue Jays and stuff. Mm. Uh, you could hear this roar from 60,000 people in the stadium. And he, he starts shuffling his feet. And he goes, he says, you know, I really should get changed. I'm keeping a couple of people waiting out there. Oh, okay. So we went. So I run into Bobby. He says, I says, I just spent a half an hour with Paul McCartney in his dress room. He goes, wow. He goes, uh, what tickets you got? I said, oh, we're way in the back in the nosebleeds. He says, give me your tickets. He gives me a pair. Alwyn and I go in. We're sitting in the second row right in front of McCartney's microphone. Oh, wow. So I just got upgraded big time. Yeah. The lights go up. And McCartney looks down and he sees me and he goes, hey, Greg, with the two <laughs> thumbs up like this. And I burst out crying like a little tiny girl guide. I mean, oh, he knows my name. <laughs> wow. It was an incredible moment. Yeah. You know? And then Richard Lester walked by, the guy that did help in A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. I'm the only guy that recognized him. You know, I went up and said, hey, he says, uh, I'm doing a movie on this tour for, for Paul. Shook his hand, you know. But I've been lucky because, you know, I met Ringo. Uh, uh, Steve Lukather is a great friend of mine from Toto. And he called me up and said, we're rehearsing up in Aurelia Casino Rama. Do you want to come up for the rehearsals and hang out? I said, let me check. Yeah, okay. So I was there the next day. And I was the only civilian in the building while Ringo and uh, who was there? Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band. The guy from uh, Mr. Mister, can't remember his name. Um, Simon Kirk, I think was, or no, Greg Bissonnette was playing drums. Um, Todd Rundgren, nobody good, right? <laughs> and, and I'm there watching. At one point, I was still smoking back then. I get up to go outside and have a smoke just as Ringo sings, would you stand up and walk out on me? And I'm thinking, that's exactly what I'm doing. You're singing out of tune and I'm walking out on you to have a smoke. But I didn't tell him that. So, Finally, Luke says to me, he says, you haven't said anything, but do you want to meet the boss? And I went, Springsteen's here? And he goes, no. He says, that's what we call Ringo. I said, "I said, it's okay. I've already met Springsteen. So the next <laughs> night before the show, we get taken backstage by his handler. And Luke comes in to make sure I'm behaving myself because he knows what I'm like. And uh, I said, he says, the guy says, no photographs, uh, no autographs. I said, it's cool, man. I just want to shake the cat's hand. He goes, that's not going to happen. He just bumps forearms. Right at that moment, the door opens. Ringo walks in. He goes, I don't shake hands. I just bump forearms. I said, that's exactly what that guy told me you'd say. <laughs> so Ringo starts laughing, right? So he comes over. And I said, you know, my friend Luke here, Luke introduces. He, said, he says, uh, Ringo, this is my great friend, Gatto. He, he's a great musician. And uh, I said, yeah, I've been here for a few days now. You know, you probably see me skulking around and stuff. I said, I just want to tell you, you look great. You're singing great. And it's a shame you couldn't get anybody good in your band. And Ringo looks at me and bursts out laughing. And then Luke is like, and he bursts out laughing. And that's my Ringo Starr story. <laughs> that's awesome. amazing. 
absolutely so amazing. the two Beatles I met I didn't make a complete goof of myself in front of you know uh they're just such a big part of especially my life because I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for those guys mm -hmm. like so many people you know yeah that it was like seeing a relative as a, like an old relative you hadn't seen in a while you know yeah yeah uh, and it, that's happened quite a few I find the bigger the stars are the nicer they are to people you know and, and I, I even with the modest amount of note after concerts especially when people want to say hello I'm sure for you get the, the same thing uh, you can see that they're nervous and and much like what Paul McCartney's so good at is disarming people that so they relax instantly even though you're the beetle that you're, that you're meeting yeah, yeah they they have a way of making you feel comfortable you know that's amazing and i've always tried to do that in my limited capacity mm -hmm. you know, somebody comes back and you can see that they're shaking and you know and it's you grab the pen off them and help them you know and, you know <laughs> so lessons learned by the best you know yeah yeah that's amazing right so on. it's really really cool really good story um now i don't i don't know uh obviously we're gonna have to try to circle back around with you and hopefully get you back on the show again because uh we're not gonna have enough time to ask us uh, your 20 questions uh and i'd imagine there would be uh, some pretty cool answers but did uh, you ask any of them uh no well obviously you already answered the alien question but uh no we didn't officially uh, well, that was oh, the most important one anyway yeah but Okay, well, we must have time for it. I mean, I, now that I know this, I feel terrible. No, that, that, that's but, okay. But I mean, I hope this was entertaining and oh, sort of funny. Fantastic. because you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's been really This amazing. isn't the first time this has happened, by the way. They, they says, hey, here's our guest, Greg, and then they don't say anything for the next two hours. Right? It's like, rant, 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 No, no. I remember when, when Kim Mitchell first started on Q107, he was just terrible. He couldn't do it. You know, he, was, he couldn't talk, and he had nothing to say, and... And then he got me in once because I think we had a gig coming up, probably that John Lennon show. Yeah. And it was, uh, here's my old friend, Greg. And then I just took over for 20 minutes. And afterwards he says, how do you do that? And I said, what? He says, how do you just like stream of consciousness tell these stories without being nervous? I said, well, first of all, disregard this thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm talking to you. Yeah. The fact that this is going out to however many people it's going out to, I never think like that. It's, I'm talking to you guys. Yeah. The yeah. fact that there's all these hot babes behind you out there, that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Yep. So go ahead. Ask me, what was the Good. big gun question? Well, actually, sorry, before before I go there, then I do have to ask you, did you ever hear about uh, Kim's uh, uh, gold record story? No. <laughs> So we had Kim Mitchell on the show. Uh, super fun. He was a great, great person to talk to. Uh, he was saying that he was uh, walking around Toronto one day and, um, you know, he used to give um, out uh, people would come to, to him all the time and saying, oh, could you give anything for an auction or these things? And eventually he gave out one oh, of his yeah. gold records out as a as a thing and he signed it. And, and um, he was out uh, walking around Toronto one day and he was with a friend and they saw a garage sale and, and he, <laughs> he went with his friend to the garage sale and there he finds his gold record on sale for five dollars how much for five dollars his gold album <laughs> oh, that's bad well, how did he react to that he, he said I, I well i said it was well did you buy it and he goes i i didn't know what to do <laughs> he goes i looked at it and i thought well how pathetic is a me to buy my own gold record back <laughs> hey you wouldn't believe how many times i had to go out and buy a copy of this from some used bookstore because i didn't have any more <laughs> 
I'm buying my going in to buy my own book. I mean, just like <laughs> that's crazy. You gotta do that's that's a great story though. Yeah, yeah, it was really funny. Um, okay, let, well, let's get at least a couple questions uh, out of you here, and um, and these are again are, are just uh, some quick questions for our uh, our audience to get to know you better as a, as a person. Um, and uh, we'll just kind of. You mean they don't know already what I'm like as a person? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you know, I'm an idiot. Okay, <laughs> you know, everybody uh, of course is uh, sometimes is is one way in front of a camera another way they're they're different so uh they're just kind of some basic questions like um if you had to make up a word and register it into the english language what would it be spladoink spladoink do you have a definition for that well i i use i use the i have a number of words made up words at least about 30 oh. uh in in both of my books when someone says something so stupid that I can't think of a word to accurately describe the stupidity, I'll say, uh, and then the guy came on to my wife, Jim Blorfed. So Blorfed <laughs> is one of them. Uh, like a Don Martin sound effect from that. Man. Pretty much like a Don <laughs> Martin sound effect. I've got tons of them in my books. And this one is no, I've got one story where every single word like that is a word I've made up. Okay. Do you have a glossary? Yeah. Like, do you really have one? No, no. I think people can figure out by when they read the sentence, and they go, "Boy, that's stupid." It and then I go, together. "Jim Blorfed," and then they realize how stupid it was, you know. <laughs> and then I noticed that you know Jim Blorfing was stupid. So yeah, so that's a good question. But I, I've already done it. I. I make up my own words when I when I need to. I mean, okay. I can't rely on Webster's, you know. Just, yeah. Well, that's how language evolves, Greg. That's exactly make it. it. Up as you go on. Yep. Someday, you know, someday when you know my great grandchildren are going through the dictionary in you know twenty eighty five, you know, and they're going to go splidonk. Our great judge made that word up, <laughs> <laughs> and now it's here. Webster's got it. Now, God, he'd be so proud that his he ended up in the dictionary. <laughs> Um, let's see what, oh, if you can have a superpower, which one would you wish you could have? Okay. I tried looking through people's clothes with my x-ray vision. That didn't work. <laughs> um, superpower. Mm -hmm. I would like to, uh, know every week what the lottery winning lottery numbers are. That there would be go. a fantastic That's power. a superpower I'd like to have. Like just to teleport into the future. Like if I ever got abducted by aliens that would let me know I was being abducted. Mm -hmm. I'd say, can we go into the future to tomorrow and then go back, but make me remember these six numbers? <laughs> <laughs> right. Not, yeah. not before they draw, only after they draw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, I want it before I want to know those numbers just so I could win once. You yep. Know? Yep. But yes. I'd have to say that uh, being able to go, yes, I've got it now. It's 12, 18, 49. <laughs> And they're in your head. I mean, why can't this thing back here help you? Hey, right. guys, please. You know? yeah. Give me a hand if you're leaving something. At least make it worthwhile. <laughs> um, i got to show you this before we go. Yeah. Some guy gave me this, which I thought was quite nice. This is a, uh, where is it here? This lights up. Can you see the light on it if I turn it off? Maybe not. Oh, there it is. Oh, you can see it sort of yep, flickering on. There it is. All. Yeah. And this yeah. lights up down here. This is it. This is one of the fabulous uh, things in my office, <laughs> along with all the alien headgear and stuff. Uh, I have an office full of this kind of stuff. That's awesome. So, so a, a fan gave me, I helped him out with something. And, and then he sent me this in the mail. And I, I just treasured this thing. 
That's that's so much cooler than uh, I've got a, a lightsaber and a Captain America shield. So in my studio, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay, one more, and then right. I'm gonna go have pizza. Oh, okay. Well, uh, let's see here. Uh, da, da, da. Okay. Um, well, you know what? Well, this is live, right? So they're getting the whole thing. Yeah. Um, well, all right. You so lucky people out there. I guess the the other one that's always a popular one is what gets on your nerves. Ferdy. Ferdy gets on my nerves. <laughs> it happens. What can I say? I, I'm working on it. I'm sorry, Greg. I'll, I'll try better no. next time. What gets on my nerves? What gets on my nerves? I mean, there's these days, there are so many. Uh, I think uh, I think the guy, when we finally, after the first lockdown, we went to a movie theater, and there was only four people in the, uh, five people in the theater. There was two behind us and one guy in the third row. And uh, we hadn't been to a movie theater in four months, and we're watching a movie uh, it was the only new one they had out. It was a uh, movie about uh, uh, Charles Dick, uh, David Copperfield, but done as a modern thing. Okay. And yeah. while the movie's on, I hear somebody talking. No, they're not talking. They're arguing. And I look down, and it's this guy in the third row having a screaming match with somebody on his cell phone. Oh. So did that bother me? Would bother me? Yes, that really bothered me. So I went down and said, hey, look at pal. You know, we didn't pay to come in here and listen to you talk to your wife. Can you take this out into the corridor? So now he gets up. He looks at me like I'm on the bottom of his shoe. He gets up and goes into the tunnel leading from the corridor to the theater. And, of course, because it's a tunnel, it the sound is amplified. <laughs> and now he's louder than the movie. So I get up again. I have no idea how big this guy is. It's dark in the tunnel. I go down suddenly full of bravado and I say, now you have to leave out of here because you're really starting to bug us. And he starts swearing at me and screaming, this is really important. I said, not to us. The movie is really important to us. You're starting to bug me. Yeah. Next he goes into this. I can see him in the dark. He's now ready. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. We're in a pandemic and you want to have a close interaction with my face. No. <laughs> so I walk around him and I said, what's going to happen next is I'm going to go out and find security and call the cops and have you out of here. You know, of course I go out, there's no staff on, on oh, duty. Yeah. There's these two little teenage girls who are, you know, taking your ticket. There's one guy now, as I'm explaining myself, because he's the only guy on staff, he's now hiding behind the popcorn machine. <laughs> <laughs> because now his job is going to be to go and take this lunatic out, you know? <laughs> so I never got any satisfaction. The whole thing was, so that gets on my nerves. Yeah. Is that how people can't think about what we're going, that we're all in this together and we've got to try and maintain an even strain or else people are going to be dying in the streets. You know, yeah. we've already seen it in America with George Floyd and, you know, people are losing reason. They're losing patience. Yeah. And they're, do, they're doing things that are not only upsetting, but are dangerous to other people. Mm -hmm. So that gets on my wick. Yeah, you know? for sure. I, I was telling Ed Pilling from Flood, uh, if you've ever read my first book, Ed is like six foot three. I never saw a fight ever with Ed on the road where it lasted more than one of his punches when the guy was just out. Oh, wow. So I said to Ed, I said, um, I said, what would you have done? He says, well, he'd still be lying on the ground. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Ed would have just bopped him. The guy would have been out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, well, he's quiet now. Let's watch the movie. You know? <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, I'm not that guy. I'm a, I'm an avowed sissy. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm not that good looking to start with. Do I really want people pummeling my face? No. <laughs> right? It's like, this is my meal ticket. <laughs> so, so to speak. They might hit me in the throat and I can't sing again. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, again, uh, we'd love to circle back around with you at some point, have you back again on the show. Uh, in the meantime, uh, why don't you tell everybody where uh, you can, uh, they can pick up your books? They can uh, not only pick up my book, but they can pick up uh, various redone Gatto albums, which I just happen to have here uh, from England with 20 uh, page booklets and all different photographs. No one's ever seen. Ooh. All the booklets are different. Uh, this is the album. I'm glad you asked. Uh, this is the album I did in Calgary with Paul Dean from Loverboy. Uh, he said, these are the best songs you've ever written. And as he turned out, he was right. Very and cool. we recorded 12 songs with all-star musicians in, in Calgary. Amazing. And then, of course, we've got both books. I have my own hot chicken sauce called In God We Trust Cock On Sauce. Ooh. And then we have, uh, which is selling very well. And then, of course, we have both of these numbered. There's only 100 available. We're going through them. Uh, and we've got more stuff coming. And of course, what I really want to sell is the book, because even though I make the least amount of money, I put the most amount of work into them. Mm -hmm. And everybody, if you see a review on on anywhere, they're all saying, these are really funny. Now, I realized when I finished the second one, this one, this one here. No, that's, I can never get this right. It's all backwards. <laughs> uh, when I finished this one, uh, first of all, they were both exactly the same amount of pages, which yeah. was really weird. Yeah. They were like a page off, but I would written nothing about my eight years living in Calgary or my five years returning to Toronto and all the stuff that happened then. And I got some great stories. So I realized what I was writing in essence was a trilogy. Yeah. So I've called the book. The new book is entitled the idiots trilogy part four. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you want humor, you get humor. And, yeah. and so far, I've written about 100 pages, mostly about so far what we, we're going through with the COVID thing. And I'm writing, and Mrs. Claypool, my gal, I, I can't remember her real name, but Mrs. Claypool will do. She she hears me cackling away in my office. And she says, what are you laughing at now? I said, read this. And she bursts out laughing and she goes, how can you find humor in what we've gone through in the last year? I said, time plus tragedy equals comedy that's right right <laughs> so the world's my is is the guy that was in the movie theater in my book oh yeah does he come across really bad oh yeah yeah really bad <laughs> you know so that's what happens but we, we were we were walking two weeks ago in a graveyard okay mm -hmm. to get out in the sun when all of a sudden i look ahead and there are two koi wolves coming at us in the daylight wow Okay. They're not dogs. These are coyote wolves. Okay. Yeah. And we don't have our car. I don't even have my cell phone to, you know, call 911. Nothing. We have nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this woman pulls up and she says, "There." I said, we can see them. Can we please get in your van? And she says, you don't have masks on. I said, and she starts to drive away. And I, <laughs> I looked at Mrs. Claypool. I said, we're about to be eaten by coyote wolves. <laughs> so the woman stops and she yells, I shouldn't be doing this, but get in and, and she got in the front and I dove in the back. And sure enough, they came running right up. So wow. Lord knows. But I turned that into a funny story. 
And trust me, there was nothing funny about the smell in that woman's van after I was in there after that. And I think she noticed that too. So there you have it. That's amazing. Now, just because you brought that up for your next book, uh, of course, if the guy uh, from the movie theater is going to be in it and, and he's really bad, did you make out like the hero? Which guy? The, the guy from the movie theater. Oh, the theater. movie theater. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, he, he ended up on the floor. And, no, no, I, no, I just, I just, just, I just told the just story the way it went down. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and it was like, it was a, a total comedy of errors because, you know, the only two people that could have possibly done anything were these two little schoolgirls who were like too busy, like, you know, what do we do? Like, you yeah. know, like, what do we do? You know, yeah, they were like exactly. ripping up tickets and stuff. I mean, they weren't going to do anything. And I certainly was, ah, it's Tesla, yeah. the big fat cat I told you about. <laughs> Tesla, you want to say hello to everybody in the studio audience? Yes, yep. he said hello. All right. Yeah, hello, let's, Tesla. Let's get the grain out. <laughs> this guy weighs about 50 pounds. Oh. I'm not kidding you. Beautiful. <laughs> wow. yeah, the big, he, he's square. I told you, he's a square. He's not yeah. even a cat. He's square. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, here comes a little girl. Here's the alien one. Madame, come here. Her name is Madame Curie. Madame. This one you can pick up. <laughs> Does she glow in the dark? Yeah. There she is. See? Oh, oh. Great Tell marking. those guys that you're from another planet. Yeah. Come on. They are from another planet. Look yeah. at that alien. Hello. <laughs> her I actually like. I let her in my room downstairs. If, if he goes in my room downstairs, he poos on the floor. Oh, so, oh no. That's <laughs> why. Yeah, every day. I said, hey, I don't know if this is lost on you. I'm the guy that feeds you every day. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, if if I don't feed you, you have nothing to poo. So right. if I starve you to death, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Maybe it made me look more like a circle than a square then. But <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, lads. But I yeah, 100%. I smell pizza. I smell pizza cooking. Somewhere. Well, we won't keep you from the pizza. Uh, again, thank you very much for taking some time on the show. We'll make sure for the, uh, the listeners who are listening to this after the live recording uh, that yeah, if you want to. That's right. Shopgreggodovitz.com. Yeah, do a, there's a lot of great stuff on there. And uh, it, it's funny because I always tell people when you get the book and stuff, send me a picture of you holding up the book and then we, we're we putting them up in the website. You know? Oh, cool. Uh, but but the other thing I want to quickly announce is that I too am going to be bringing back my old radio show, Rock Talk, as a Rock Talk podcast. Amazing. Oh, nice. Perfect. And uh, because I still have all my notes from Rock Talk where I had like just unbelievable people. I still have all their cell numbers and stuff. Mm -hmm. My first guest is going to be Eddie Kramer for an hour. Yeah. which will probably be two hours. Uh, Larry Gowan popped by the other day to pick up a copy of my book, and I told him, and he'd been on Rock Talk many times. He said, love to do it. Uh, cool. I called Steve Lukather from Toto. He said, I'd love to do it. So I'm going to I'm gonna get you know those guys to come on, and uh, and hopefully uh, we can sell some books. Well, you should get uh, Steve. Oh. Uh, give, give Steve the heads up that uh, his manager made a mistake by not having him on our show. So. <laughs> oh, really? Eh? Yeah. Did you try to get Luke? Yeah. Yeah. So he's the, uh, man, he's the nicest guy. Yeah. Apparently he's got a lot of people looking to get him on the show. So uh maybe uh maybe we Yeah, just, he could we well, he'll do it for yet. me because we're we're good friends and we laugh at each other all the time. So yeah, and he likes my writing it? too. So yeah, uh, and he's cool. in my new book, so why wouldn't he? I, I said nice things though. I lied. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well again Nice talking to you, lads. You as well and again. Nice for talking our, to you too, Greg. You take care. Thanks. Yeah. Tell Biff I said hi. I will. So amazing. Uh, again, for anybody who's listening on the road, uh, we'll make sure that uh, if you want to jump over to our website, uh, we'll make sure we put a great picture of Greg Godovitz up on our uh, guest section, as well as uh, links on how to get to all this uh, social media and all that good stuff. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, by the way, on Saturday, when is this going to be aired? Or it's airing now? It's up there now? Uh, well, it's live right now. So as soon as live, we hit the yeah. end button, it will be out there. But uh, the recording will then come out uh, probably in about a, a month's time. So I know this is going to be hard for you uh, guys to believe, but I'm going to be 70 years old on Saturday. Whoa, happy early birthday. Well, you birthday. feel like a pair of 35-year-olds, don't yeah. you? Well, yeah, you know... Like if I don't have to look at myself, I feel great. But this is the worst <laughs> thing about doing these things. I go, I go, and I see pictures of me playing. I go, when the hell did my dad start playing my bass? When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sneaks up on you. And this is me and. Forbidden Planet. <laughs> 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 and Greg is out of here again. Uh, Freddie, thank you very much for joining us as a guest ho- ho- co-host. And we will make sure that we have you as a feature on our show very soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Very fun. Very, very fun. And we'll see you sometime soon. Excellent. And we hope to see everybody again next week the same time. So this is a good time for us to pitch our social media. You could get us on our website. Thefap.ca. On uh, Twitter. Is the fap 4 you can get us on Instagram. Is the Fab Podcast. Don't forget our Facebook. The Freaking Awesome Podcast. And uh, you can always reach out via email. The Fab Podcast at gmail.com. I'm on the air. We on the air. We got this podcast. Ah, uh, oh, not again. Wicked sweet. Eh. <laughs>